Our Lord and God, we come before you in Jesus' name. And we do thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We do thank you, Lord, for bringing us to this place to together learn how we can better understand what it is to be a healthy church member, but also to learn what it is our church practices. Help us to have uh, open minds that are clear to understand, open eyes, Lord, that are clear to see, and soft hearts, Father, that are ready and willing to receive your word by your grace as you soften our hearts. We pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, to have uh, alert minds as much information will be passing through it today. And help us to retain all that we can for your glory. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less that you can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way this evening and that you alone will be glorified. For the glory of God and for the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. So last week, we gave a biblical case for church membership. Could you plug that in? Yeah. Uh, And I do pray that you were greatly encouraged and informed by the teaching and that you are now able to give a reason for church membership. Maybe uh, you were not able to condense all the points from last week. And if that is the case, then I condense them for you with these four points. The four points that we essentially went over were the biblical example of the local church, the gathering of the local church. These are the four points from last week. I've kind of condensed them so that you can see them more clearly. The biblical institution of church government, which would be elders, deacons, etc. The biblical command of church discipline and restoration. Then the biblical command of mutual edification through the one another's of scripture. There are 59 in all of the scriptures, 14 in the New Testament. Uh, Don't feel like you need to to write all these down, I'll make sure that Arturo puts these up as a PDF on our website so that you can just click them and download them for yourself. All right? So these will be available for you. These are the points that we discussed last week. If there are any questions about any of these points, please do not hesitate to ask, and we would be happy to sit down and or stand up, whatever is good for you, and discuss any of these things. Tonight, I would like to share with you something that you may have been wondering for a while. And that is, why do we have a confession? Why do we have a confession of faith? You may have heard the announcement that Isaiah, after teaching through the fruit of the Spirit, will be going through the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is our confession of faith here at Reformation Bible Church. And you may have said to yourself, why is that? What is that? You may have even asked, is that necessary? Is that important? You may have uh, never experienced being in a church that is confessional. If you were at the service on Sunday, you, you may have heard the minister say, we are confessional people. You may have heard him say that a few times. Well, he was referring to things like we are confessing tonight and things that we confess as a church. How many of you in all of your church life have ever been to a church that was a confessional church? Besides this one. Yeah. If you were a part of a Roman Catholic church, you were a part of a creedal confessional church without really knowing it. And they were saying all of those things pretty much in Latin. Um, But you were a part of, if you were a part of the Roman Catholic church, you were a part of a church that had confessions, meaning things that they hold to, things that they believe. Tonight, with the help of God, I would like to hopefully answer the questions, why is that, what is that, is that necessary, is that important, and any other questions, God willing that you're wrestling with. 
the best place that we know that we can go to find out the answers for those questions is obviously going to be for us in Scripture. I want us to be, I want you, I want myself to be rooted in the practices of the church, but not because they are good things, but because they are rooted in Scripture. Amen? So let's start with the first one. What is a confession? A confession is an extensive statement of Christian doctrine carefully expressed in language that is recognized and understood among Christians throughout the ages. You can see that up there. A confession, it links us together with the church Catholic. You remember me saying uh, the universal church last week when I was speaking about the local church and then the universal church. The church Catholic is essentially the universal body of Christ. Not the Roman Catholic Church, but the universal body of, of Christ, which is known as, or referred to as, the church Catholic. Amen? A good confession of faith ties us to the communion of saints, which is the universal body of Christ. If someone from the 16th century came and looked at our confession of faith, they ought to be able to recognize it as biblical and clearly Christian in orthodoxy. Clearly Christian in orthodoxy. Not only does it tie us to the church Catholic, but it also expresses our distinctives. Distinctives meaning the things that are distinct about what we believe. The things that are distinct about what we believe. In our confession, we clearly state our common doctrines, that is, the beliefs that we share with other believers, such as the Trinity, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, justification by faith alone, etc. But we also have distinguishing doctrines from other Christians and other churches. And one of the most obvious is our confession, uh, in our confession, is our belief in the Bible's teaching of believers' baptism. We have much in common with other Reformed churches, but we don't baptize our babies. We believe that baptism is to be based upon a profession of faith and not upon birth within a particular family. That's just one of our distinctives. Are you following me? Okay. A confession of faith, we're talking about what is a confession? Confession of faith describes those distinctives. How many of you have ever heard of creeds? Anybody ever heard of a creed? Yeah. Some may have heard of a creed, such as the Apostles' Creed. You ever heard of the Apostles' Creed? Yeah. How about the Nicene Creed? There's another one called the, uh, the Chalcedonian Statement. These are all creeds. So you may ask yourself, and you should be asking yourself, what's the difference between a creed and a confession? We are creedal and confessional people. We are creedal and confessional people. In many ways, creeds and confessions are the same. They have the same function. The differences between creeds and confessions are, are really minimal, but in, in, in many ways, they are very much the same. Are we all together? Amen? Okay. A creed is a brief statement of faith. It's a brief statement of faith. A confession is a longer more detailed document. Creed is a, a brief statement. A confession is a longer document. A creed touches on a few important doctrines, while a confession is way more extensive. A creed is generally intended to be spoken as a whole. Uh, many churches 
while taking the Lord's Supper, they will recite the Apostles' Creed together, or they'll recite the, the Nicene Creed together as a group, as a means to state what they believe and, and what they place their faith in. It is something, a creed, is something that we confess together. The confession, if we confessed or recited the confession together, it would take us maybe two services. It's that long. A creed states what we must believe. A confession is what we should believe, or at least what we hold to, what we do believe. The creed briefly summarizes the things that are essential to the Christian faith. A confession states what Christians should believe. Are we all on the same page? Okay. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Statement, those are all things that Christians agree on. These are things that we must believe. You, you may not know it or not, but mo- most of your confessions, most of the things that you say you believe come from statements such as the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Statement. <clears throat> when you come to our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession or the Westminster Confession or even the 39 Articles of the Church of England, what you find is those longer statements, they have incorporated creeds such as the Apostles' Creed. If you were to look at the second chapter of the London Baptist Confession, we see that it incorporates the technical language of Trinitarianism that we find where? In the Nicene Creed. Are we together? I'm going to keep asking you that, okay? Or we could look at the eighth chapter of the London Baptist Confession of Faith of Christ the Mediator. And it takes the theological language of the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian statement that Christ is fully God, fully man. Two natures united together in one forever. And that is the technical language. And our confession goes beyond those statements or those creeds. And they express the distinctives of whatever this body or that body believes. If you go to the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's the distinctives for Presbyterians. If you go to the 39 Articles, it is the distinctives, what they distinctively believe, what makes them distinctive from the Church of England, as it is with the LBC. You're going to hear me say LBC, not Long Beach, California, but the LBC, London Baptist Confession, is distinctive for Reformed Baptists. We hold to, we confess the London Baptist Confession, which makes you, if you believe in it and hold to it, at least the leadership of the church, Reformed Baptist. Those are our distinctives of what we believe. We all uh, agree on essentials in the larger statements, such as the Trinity, the person of Christ. But the confessions allow us to acknowledge our differences and also keep us from unchurching others because we can see what we have in common while also expressing our distinctives. Distinctives are differences. Are we okay? So a confession... It draws boundaries, boundaries of inclusion and boundaries of exclusion. They are based carefully on scripture as they have been understood by Christians from the beginning. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this later. But the most obvious question that should be running through your mind is this. Where do you find that in scripture? Where do you find confessions in scripture? And I'm so glad you asked. So let's go to our second point. Confession 
in Scripture. Go ahead. One more. Keep going. Oh, that's why they didn't know what I was talking about. All right. Deuteronomy. You didn't know what I was talking about either. Six. Deuteronomy chapter six. Let's go there. We're going to turn to maybe three places altogether. This is, I know, the first time you've been exposed to any of this. And you're thinking, why do I need to know this? You're going to find out. You're thinking, why is this important? I pray to God you understand why it's important. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all its stat- his statutes and his commands, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that they may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob to give you to you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees and that you did not plant and when you eat and are full take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery it is the Lord your God you shall fear him he him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in the midst, in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. When you read those 15 verses, there are many times when you hear, hear, listen, pay attention. When we come to verses 4 and 5, in the light of all the context, that God has done for them. He comes and expresses to them the basic truths of who he is and how they are to love him and to acknowledge him. They are told to teach these words and we are told where they are to teach these words. In your home, to your neighbors, when you lie down, when you walk, all over the place. And in verse 10 through 15, it is that confession that they've confessed in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. It is that confession that became the most central and basic confession in all of Judaism. It became important in the history of Israel, especially after their return from Babylon to captivity, Babylonian captivity. A practice developed among the Jews where, listen, every Jew was required to recite this confession. What confession? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is known as the Shema. You may have heard that before. It is known as the Shema. They were to recite it two times a day. Once in the morning, 
and then once in the evening. And to, it was to remind themselves of the foundation of their faith. Before it was recited, the Jew was to recite two blessings, two benedictions, and then recite the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then another benediction, another blessing. In the evening, they are to recite two blessings. Then the Shema, Hear, O, Lord, hear, o Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then two more blessings. It was to be written down and they were to, to carry it in little boxes that were attached to their clothes uh, called phylacteries. You may have seen some Jews that have little boxes tied around their arms. You may have seen other Jews, I've seen them in Los Angeles, that have a box right on their forehead. This is what they're doing. They're obeying this passage. They are ever being reminded of the confession all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 4. The Shema was to be memorized. It was to be recited by heart. It could be spoken in any language, but reciting the Shema was equal to reading the law. For the Shema became or came from the law. So you could read the Shema and it would be like you were reciting the law because the Shema came from the law. It was to be a reminder of the Ten Commandments. It was to be a summary of the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is a summary of the Ten Commandments. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. If someone was to offer a sacrifice, they could instead recite the Shema as a substitute for their worship, for their, for their sacrifice and worship. The priest in the temple, before they performed their duty, they would recite the Shema. We know from history that the Shema was recited in synagogue worship. worship. The law and the prophets were read, but the Shema was something that the congregation recited together. The law and the prophets were read, but the Shema was something that they together recited. It was a united expression of their faith. It was not a prayer. It was a statement. It was not a prayer. It was a statement. A confession. It became, among the Jews, a daily reminder of the uniqueness of the Lord and the Jews' responsibility to love Him, to worship Him, to obey Him, and to love their neighbors. This was fundamental. It was fundamental confession. The fundamental confession of Israel. And where does it find its roots? In Scripture. It became so a part of the culture. And where did it find its roots? In Scripture. There is another Jewish confession that is related to the Shema. It is simply one God. It's one statement. One expression. And it is simply one God. It is found in many ancient Jewish services and locations. Archaeologists have uncovered this phrase, often outside of synagogues, as something, as a testimony to the world around them of what they believe. Imagine living in a pagan world with its many gods. The Jews, as a testimony to the world, would incorporate into the structure of their buildings, in the local language, whatever that language may have been in that city that they were living in, they were incorporating this phrase, one God, as a testimony to their faith, to everyone around them. They were confessing, they believe in one God. Now imagine in a world at that time of many gods, hundreds and thousands of gods, you have this one particular church, that is declaring to the world, we believe in one God. That is their confession. Mark 10.18, and I've written down these scriptures there. I'm not going to read them all for you. They all state that this has become central in the lives of the Jews. 
As a matter of fact, I will kind of say some of them. No, I won't. We'll have the PDF, and those who want to hear this sermon, if you're listening to it now, you can find all the scriptures on our PDF. 1 Timothy 1.17, there is one God and one mediator between man, God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Romans uh, 3.16, Jude 7. 17, we all of that, we find in combination statements, James saying in James 2.19, you believe there is one God, you do well. He's reciting what the Jews have been practicing for years. And James is writing, uh, writing to Jews at that particular time, writing to Jewish Christians, and confession became really important in Old Testament Judaism. It provided them with the benefits of theological identity. It gave a clear statement of faith. It rejected false religion because it pointed out that they believed in one true God who revealed himself in Scripture. When Israel was not serious about confessing her faith, what did she do? She fell into idolatry. She fell into immorality. But after the exile, when Israel came back, you don't find them being accused of idolatry any longer, do you? No. Because they held on to their confession. Hear, O Israel, the Shema. And it became central to the people of Israel. And they no longer gave themselves over to chasing after other gods. Israel's basic confession was this. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was a confession that united both Jews, or that united all Jews, both through daily recitation and also through public recitation in in the synagogues. This confession was a distinguishing mark of their Jewish faith. Are we on the same page? This confession was a distinguishing mark of their Jewish faith. Now, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Let's go there. The word for confess appears 23 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In so many different places in the New Testament. Six times in the New Testament. Can you see them there? Second Corinthians 9.13, First Timothy. Do you see all those? In all of those scriptures there, pay attention. The noun appears and it refers to the act of confessing. The noun, it's a noun in all of those verses. And it refers to the act of confessing. But not directly the content of what you're confessing. Are we all on the same page? So it's speaking about doing it, but not necessarily what it contains. Just the act of confessing. Like reciting the Apostles' Creed. Not so much the contents of it, though. When we find it in the noun form, we are seeing that Scripture is pointing to the importance of actually speaking these things. Making these statements. Now, let me say that again. Scripture is emphasizing, say these things. Emphasize these things. Emphatically, speak these things. Now, it's not saying what to speak, but it is saying, speak these things. But there is also another form. It's a verb form that refers to both the act and the content. The act and the content. Now, let's find one of those. Romans chapter 10. Go there quickly, please. Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, Paul is explaining why Israel is in unbelief. The reason is because they pursued the righteousness of the law and not the righteousness of faith. They thought they could work their way to God's favor, and they could not. 
So Paul introduces the righteousness of faith, and he does this. He, he turns the righteousness of faith into a person. We're going to see how he does that. It is, if, it is as if the righteousness of faith were an individual who could speak. He puts words in the mouth of the righteousness of faith. And here's what he says in verse number 8. But what does it say? What does it say? Almost as if it is speaking, righteousness is speaking. It says this, the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. That if you, what? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. I personally believe that Paul is speaking about believers' baptism from this verse. Because what do most do historically when they are baptized? They make a profession or confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. A confession is made upon baptism. And Paul is saying it is based upon that confession and the act therein of identifying yourself with Christ that you are Declaring yourself to be one who, has, who God has so worked in the heart of, and you are therefore saved. Here's another one, 1 Timothy 6. Let's go there real quick. I usually don't have you turn to scriptures, but I need you to look at these tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to go there quickly and read it quickly. Verse 11. <clears throat> but as for you, Paul speaking to Timothy, Flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, goodness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life with which you were called, listen, and about which you made the good confession, where? In the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and Christ Jesus, who is his testimony. He goes on to say, But when do you make a confession of faith in the presence of many witnesses? Especially during that time. You make that confession in the presence of many witnesses during that time when you were baptized. And Paul is making a charge to Timothy. The confession that you made when you stood before all of those people and that you confessed Christ as your Lord, hold on to that confession. Fight the good fight of faith. Don't let go of what you confessed and what you believed. Amen. You made a good confession. Hold on to it. Don't let go. This is to say that when we are... That is to say that when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, we hold on to our confession. There's a number of scriptures that I want you guys to see. Go to that page, please. The next one. In John 9.22, we confess Jesus Christ. In Romans 10.9, we confess Jesus is Lord. In 1 John 4.15, we confess Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John 4, we confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. Matthew 10.32, it's a testimony of one's relationship to Christ. John 9.22, the story of the man born blind. And he must give a confession about the person of Christ. 1 John 4 uh, gives a testimony of orthodoxy that we believe the right thing. Over and over again, we find that this word in the New Testament is a verbal statement which says the truth. 
We believe in Jesus. We believe there is one God. We are committed to Him. In the New Testament, there are words that are also opposites of confess, which is deny or renounce. To renounce is to turn away from the faith. The denial of Christ as the Son of God uh, in 1 John 2.23. The denial of Christ as Master, 2 Peter. The denial of our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, Jude 4. The denial of Christ's name, Revelation 3.8. The denial of God, Titus 1.16. All of these denouncing, uh, denyings. Scripture is calling us to confess. But it is also saying there are things that you should not deny. These people denied the Son of God, Jesus Christ. These people denied Jesus as Master. These people denied Lord and Master. These people denied the name of Christ. They denied God. All of these are things that we should not, we must not deny. If we do deny, then we are opposed to God. But rather we confess the opposite of these things. Are we on the same page? Okay. So confession is an open declaration of a Christian's relationship to Christ. And it requires what? It requires an intelligent profession of Christ. It requires submission to His Lordship. If I am intelligently professing Christ, then I must ask myself some really important questions. In Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 9, what do you confess? We must confess with our hearts and believe, confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. And and, and what? What's the rest of that? And that God raised Him from the dead. We must make that confession. Now, now ask yourself this, as you are hopefully thinking and your wheels are turning. Why does Paul focus on the resurrection of Jesus? Why does Paul not say, you must confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross? But rather, he says, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Think about that. Why? Because the resurrection is the hinge upon which everything else turns. Think about this. The resurrection implies everything that it, that it precedes the resurrection. So, it implies a death. Amen? It implies a burial. When you talk about his death, you must talk about the, the, the theological significance of his death. Why did he die? Well, he bore our sins. That starts to talk about what made him, what made him capable of bearing our sins. What made him good enough to bear our sin. Now it implies the kind of person that he was and the kind of life that he lived. And then it points to a virgin birth. And it points to the fact that he's more than a man. And it points to the fact that he is eternal, that he is then the second member of the Trinity. So there's so much implied if you, start to re, if you start to think backwards or work backwards from the resurrection. It implies so many wonderful truths. When you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, you are putting together all of these wonderful theological truths. And guess what? All of those wonderful theological truths are found in our confession of faith and explained. Could you explain them? Well, guess what? You have a place that you can go to that can summarize for us what those main points of what we believe are. That's our confession of faith. Likewise, to claim that Christ is Lord 
It is to submit to his lordship. It's not just a bare statement. We don't just say Jesus is Lord and, and, and it has no weight to it. We don't just say with our mouths Jesus is Lord, but we lay down our lives before him. And when you think about Paul and who he's speaking to, uh, these people here in the church of Rome, these are people that had to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar. And they would have to say, Caesar is Lord. And if they didn't, then they would die. Or they would be imprisoned. But these people, these Christians, in Rome, they refused to do so. Why? Because they had a confession. And their confession was not that Caesar is Lord. Their confession was that Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. So Paul is making a direct opposite statement to what they are forced to make. Don't say Jesus or Caesar is Lord. Say that Jesus is Lord. This is our confession. And they held fast to that. And they lost their lives because of it. This is what we confess. This is what we believe. Just as the Shema united all the Jews, so Christian confession unites all believers. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is our most basic confession. And he unites all believers who believe in Christ. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Let me show you something real quick and then we will get into our final point for the night. 1 Timothy chapter 3. You will, this will be the last scripture that you turn to. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 14. <clears throat> Are you there? Let's go. And I'm actually going to go just to verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. Great indeed... We confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Do you see something different about the the end of verse 16? Is there something different about the end of verse 16? What do you see different there? Speak it out. Huh? Huh? There's a semicolon. Good job, brother. What else do you see differently there? What's that? Okay, what do you see differently just about the writing of it? It looks almost poetic. It's, it's kind of uh, taken out of the, the regular flow. Why? Paul is pointing to something. This is a confession that would have been spoken by all of the early churches. That which you see, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in the glory. This is one of the early church confessions of the early church. Paul was reciting what the early churches would all recite together as a proclamation of what they believed concerning Christ. Of what? His divinity. His humanity. His ascension and his reign as Christ. This was a confession of the early church. We also have another one in Philippians 2, 5-11. That's another creed of the early church concerning Christ. We find it all throughout the New Testament. So if you're sitting here and you're saying, why a creed? Why a confession? You're actually going back to what we originally did in Scripture. You've gone all this time, the church has gone all these years of saying, we don't need that. Doctrine divides. That's too stringent. That's too much theology. You're actually getting back to this. Because that's what they've always done. 
Maybe you'll wake up now. Number three. So now you want to ask yourself this. Why is a confession important in the local church? I'm going to run through 11 points very quickly. Here's number one. And I, I put them in, in letters. A. A confession of faith provides a clear content to our faith. What is faith? Again, as we've stated, true faith is an intelligent understanding of the truth that God has revealed. We already looked at Romans chapter 10. Verse 8 and 9 tells us that if the, it, as if righteousness is speaking again, that we must confess that Jesus is Lord. Paul puts confession in relationship to confessing that Jesus Christ has been raised. Again, why? Why the resurrection? Because of all of those implications, life, death, resurrection, all that it points to concerning who Christ is. Now, a confession of faith is a document that helps us to understand that, or at least gives us insight into how to explain that. It gives us insight into how to explain that. That what? That Jesus is truly God. The second person of the Trinity. Blessed forever to be worshipped by us who comes down and takes upon himself true humanity. True humanity in everything that it means to be human. And he unites in himself true deity and true humanity. And as God, he is able to represent God to the people. And as a human, he is able to represent people to God. That is who Jesus is. And guess what? Our confession of faith, it fleshes that out for us. You may think, how do I explain the Trinity? Why don't you go to our confession? It'll help you. How do I explain the person of Christ? Go to our confession. It'll help you explain that. Paul uses a theological shorthand. Listen, guys. The name of Jesus doesn't mean whatever you want it to mean. The name of Jesus doesn't mean whatever you want it to mean. He's Lord. What does that mean? A confession of faith helps you to explain that. It helps you to determine what Scripture teaches concerning what it means that Jesus is Lord. And that confession has gone through a lot of studying to make sure that that's what Scripture teaches. Confession of faith takes for us a simple question like, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? And it answers all of those great questions about his life, his death, his resurrection, his eternal existence, etc. And it gives us, listen, content to our faith. Content to our faith. Someone asks you, what does it mean that, uh, that you believe in the Scriptures? I don't know, I just believe in them. The confession will give you such clarity on why the scriptures are to be treated as inerrant and perfect and from God. It gives content to your faith. It's not based upon opinions. It's based upon God's word, his revealed word. And this is so important for us to know because you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. Amen? Don't you want to be able to explain what you know? Why you believe it, the confession will help you do that. Secondly, or B, a confession is important because it provides a basis of unity within the church. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we just saw that. Another text that we discussed, and Paul says, not we confess, but literally it's translated as an adverb, which is this. Confessively great is the mystery of godliness. Confessively great is the mystery of godliness. And that is this, among all Christians... This is what we confess. This is what we acknowledge. This is what we declare. This is a confession that would have been, again, employed, employed in the early church. It would have been something that the early church, when they met together, they would recite together. You know how beautiful it is when I hear you guys all singing 
man of sorrows, or yet I sin, or whatever other songs that we sing. It is, it is a wonderful thing. There is such a great sense of unity when you hear all of the believers singing together. Now, can you imagine all of us reciting together that which we believe? How powerful that is. That is the unity that the church has. When everyone believes and is able to speak together a common confession. In John 17, Jesus prays for oneness among his people. He prays for unity. But how would we be united? What is, what is the, the, the means through which we would be united? Obviously through the Spirit of God, but truth. Unite them in your, in your word, in your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them, he says, in, in your truth. Your word is truth. When we together express what we believe, that we believe the same thing, there is unity in the church of Christ. And it's not based upon experiences. Our unity is not based upon experiences. It's not based upon feelings, but it's based upon the truth that we together hold. And that is so much more powerful than feelings. Unity is based on what we believe together. See, confession provides a basis for life and godliness. Theology disciplines everything. Theology, oh gosh, you've got to get this point. Theology disciplines everything. What we believe ought to precede what we do. What we believe ought to precede what we do. What we do is an outworking of what we believe. What we do is an outworking with what we believe. When you're asked or faced with a decision, you should never ask, what should I do? Rather, you should be asking yourself, what do I believe? You should never ask yourself, what should I do? You should ask yourself, what do I believe? What do I believe? And what you will believe will affect the conclusion that you make concerning what you do. That is a principle you can take for the rest of your life. Not what should I do, what do I believe? And often, what you believe will be counterintuitive to what you feel like you should do. Amen? Often, what we believe will, will sometimes not be in line with our natural inclinations. Trust what Scripture says, even when it's hard for you to believe it. And I know this is a point that's been abused by many people, by many so-called ministers. But for those who struggle financially, we all say, well, I'd like to give, but I just can't give. You can't afford not to give. Scripture commands you give. You can't afford not to give. Well, I can't give a lot. It doesn't matter. You set your gift aside and you give first to the Lord and to His church and you trust and believe in Him that He will provide. And I've seen this in my own life. Take Him seriously. Believe in Him. He will provide and sometimes bring even more in than you were expecting. So continue to give. Give. And I'm glad that this point that I just shared, it came from a conservative Reformed Baptist by the name of James Ranahan. I didn't get that point from TBN, which you would have thought you got it from, someone got it from. It's counterintuitive. It's not the advice that you would automatically think, it's a con- but a confession gives us a broad basis of doctrine out of which our lives flow. Our lives flow out of what we believe. Let's go to the next point. Uh, D. A confession provides theological safety and stability for the members of the church. Let us hold fast, Hebrews 10.23, to the confession of our, to, hold us fast to the confession of our, 
hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The writer of the Hebrews teaches that faith is a lifelong act. It's not a momentary act or something that, that you did a long time ago. It's something that you never let go of. Faith is something that you never let go of. And faith has many circumstances. You know this. You'll you'll struggle with doubt. You'll have weak faith. But weak faith is not the same as no faith. Weak faith is not the same as no faith. The disciples asked Jesus to increase our faith. And Jesus did not rebuke them and say, no, you need to have faith. Jesus told them to trust in God. A confession helps us in time of trouble because it summarizes for us what Scripture teaches and it sends us to the Savior, to the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives you safety and gives you stability. E. A confession provides a basis for instructing our children and new converts of the faith. Again, this is going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. We have a passage here in Scripture that tells us that children are not born with the knowledge of Christian doctrine. And neither are new converts. And they are easily blown away with every wind of doctrine. And it is our responsibility to teach them truth. And a confession provides a summary for our children and how we are to instruct them. And also for new converts. And how we are to help them to mature in the faith. Now, let me just stop for a second. I hope that you're concerned with growing up. I hope that you're concerned with maturing. If you've been coming to church for ten years and you still don't bring a Bible... You don't want to grow up. You've been coming to church for 10 years and you still won't take a note and you still fall asleep. Stop wasting your time. Well, maybe you're here and maybe God is doing something amazing, so I I should take that back. But my God, you should want to grow up. There should be things that you hear that you are constantly saying, help me to grow in my personal life. Help me to grow in my walk with you. Give me things to read so that I can love my family better, love my wife better, love love my church and serve my church better. You should want to grow up. You can't be Peter Pan. You have to grow up. E, F, F. A confession provides guidelines for elders. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. And there is much more instruction there, but it is our task as elders of the church to preach the word. Not my interpretation, not necessarily, but the views that have been historically held by the church Catholic throughout the ages. This is what the church has always believed. A good confession protects the church from internal threats. Paul says in in Acts 20.26, fierce wolves will come in among you. Paul knows the elders and he says goodbye to them and warns them of the outside dangers and also the inside dangers. Wolves will come in and they will spare the flock. And he's speaking about those who are among the teachers, the elders. There will be some who arise and who will speak twisted things. Uh, three years ago, maybe four years ago now, I can remember teaching a sermon. And I can remember after every sermon there would be one individual, one ugly individual in the corner. And they'd be pulling people aside. Showing them scripture. And I saw and I knew exactly what he was trying to do. And he was teaching the opposite of what I was teaching. And then I come to find out later that he said, I shouldn't even be a pastor. I come to find out later that I don't even know what I'm talking about. These are all the things that he said behind my back. You know who he is. Dangerous wolf in sheep's clothing. And he would come to me. Oh gosh, and as I think about it now, he would come to me after service and say, Pastor, how are you doing? That was good, Pastor. Good job, Pastor. And then he would turn around and he would go into someone's corner or, or he would go into a corner of the parking lot and try to teach heretical things in private. Wolves will, will come up from among you. And it happens in every church. It happens in every church. 
The confession of faith provides an objective standard against personal interpretation and it protects the, ch- the church when it is applied faithfully. You will be able to point to what our confession says. It says, no, brother, that's not what we practice, not what we believe. You have a standard by which you can protect yourself and by which we can protect you as well. Amen? Amen. It's difficult, but it must be done even for us. You must hold my feet to the fire and, and, and demand that I preach God's word. And if I depart from God's word and from our confession or from orthodoxy, I must be. And so must any of the elders or anybody who is teaching be removed from teaching if they are teaching the opposite of what we hold and what we believe. It is a means of protecting the church and keeping teachers accountable. Amen? Now, that was for the inside. What about for the outside? And I'll finish these last three in three minutes, maybe. It provides an identity to, to display orthodoxy. 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you can read the rest of it. People on the outside need to be able to look at us and identify who we are. How will they be able to do that? Look at our confession. We confess who Jesus is, and that is why I can work with a Presbyterian, because he knows what I believe, and I know what he believes. And we have so much in common, which is why we can work together. B, a confession provides an identity in a day when identity... Identities are purposely hidden or ignored. I want you to think about this as we close. Think about the churches in this city and their names alone. Discovery Church. What does that mean? The bridge. The bridge to what? The rock. What kind of rock? The vineyard. Are we going to drink? I met a pastor from Ventura, uh, a very popular pastor. I'll say his name, Britt Merrick. He's the pastor of three churches. He's the main guy of three churches. One in Ventura area, one in L.A., and one in San Francisco. We were hanging out in Mexico together uh, for missions, not just hanging out in Mexico. Uh, The name of his church is Reality Church. Reality. To what? Discovery of what? And when Brent asked me the name of our church, I told him, our church name is Reformation Bible Church. His automatic response was, whoa, he's a surfer guy, no guessing who you guys are. And he said it as a joke. And I said to him immediately, that's why we named our church that name. So there would be no guessing who we are. My response to him was, what the heck is reality? And we had fun with that. And there are so many churches. They'll say, we have, we have statements of faith, but they're so brief. They're so vague. And you'll read their statements and say, well, they believe in the Trinity. They believe in the Bible. They believe that man is a sinner. Sure they do. So vague. What is our confession? It is a long statement. You can see all of the details of what we believe. There is no hiding there. So you'll see on our website, statements of faith that we're working on to, uh, to expand. But you're going to see soon... A summary of what the confession says. So you'll see of God, of Jesus, of Scripture, of the Trinity. And then we're going to say, for more information, go to our confession of faith, which will give you all of the details of what we believe concerning what we believe the Bible teaches. I have come to love to call myself a Reformed Baptist. I've come to love to be able to know my identity, who I am, what I believe. There's no guessing. There's no, I don't know yet. I know who I am. I know what I believe. I know what I hold on to. And there's such a a trend to be discreet. 
Because discreet draws attention to people. And it, well, there's, there's no true identity. We're just kind of all just here. And doesn't really matter, dude. And in an age where they don't want things to matter. They don't want you to have firm stance on what you believe. They want you to just say, hey, treat me good. I'll treat you good. That's all that matters. Now, I can treat you good with also standing on what I believe and knowing who I am. Amen? Amen. So have an identity. Know who you are and wrap it hard and love people at the same time. Last one. Confession provides a basis for cooperation with others. Is that my final point? Oh, I got one more. We are not the only church. And praise God for that. There are so many others and it is a confession that allows us to work together. We work most closely with other Reformed Baptists. You may ask, why, why, why do you work so much with Sovereign Grace? Here's why. It is because they are the only other Reformed Baptist church in the city. And they have been a loving expression of what Christian unity is all about. They have constantly invited us. They have constantly, especially to, to our leadership, constantly involved us in everything and anything that they're doing. They have shown the utmost expression of what it truly means to show Christian brotherhood and Christian unity. And we love and appreciate them for that. Pastor Richard Barcelos of Palmdale, another Reformed Baptist who we love and whom we support. But our confession has not so isolated us from non-Reformed Baptists. We love Pastor Valentine from Shafter, a Presbyterian. We love to work with him, support him, and what God is doing in him to accomplish the work there in Shafter. We love Pastor Tracy of Grace Reform. We love him and just saw him at the conference recently. Some of our guys were actually trying to go to his church, interestingly enough. Um, we love Pastor Randy Martin, who we, I just connected with on Sunday once again. And he's a covenant Presbyterian, or he's from a church called Covenant Presbyterian. We love and agree with him, even though we disagree on baptism. And even though we disagree on church polity, we love and appreciate him. We can work together. But we also don't stop there. We also are willing to work with other evangelicals who are passionate about getting the gospel to the nation, such as Brandon Buser and the Buser family. They are not reformed in their churches or in their polity. Maybe so they're, they're Calvinistic, but they're not reformed in the sense that they belong to a reformed church. But they are preaching the gospel and they're getting it to the nation. So we join with them. They hold Catholic doctrines that we hold to. And finally, a confession protects the church from external threats. From people who would want to come in and distort the truth. Our confession protects us from those outside influences. There's much more we could say. I could have turned this into maybe a four-week lesson. And I know there was a lot of information tonight. And I pray that it was helpful. I know it was very fast. But I pray that it answered some of your questions concerning why we hold and have a confession. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night. Pray that you have been glorified in all that we discussed. Lord, though it was spoken quickly and though it was spoken maybe in broken, with broken clarity, we pray that you make sense of all that was spoken and that you were glorified in it. Your people were edified. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.